0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, two significant exhibitions that look at American art. First up, Virginia Arcadia, the natural bridge in American art. My guest is Chris Oliver, who curated the show for the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. It's on view through August 1st. Virginia Arcadia examines how artists portrayed the natural bridge, the famed landscape feature in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Despite being in the South, a region rarely visited by artists who tended to focus their work on the Northeast, the Natural Bridge attracted artists such as Frederick Church and David Johnson who were interested in its geology, its association with Thomas Jefferson, who once owned the land that contains the Natural Bridge, how it could be used to address American republicanism and union, and more. The exhibition is accompanied by a small catalog published by VMFA. On the second segment, Americans in Spain painting and travel, 1820 to 1920, at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk. One quick note before we get to this week's show, due to a technical issue, images will be a little slow to upload to the show page at manpodcast.com this week. I think they'll be there by Sunday. They might be there sooner. Chris Oliver, after the break. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Villa Museum or experience it for the first time, great news. The villa has reopened. Explore blooming gardens, antiquities galleries, Roman-inspired architecture, and a major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins, which features stunning works from the Met, the Louvre, and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Free advance reservations are available now at getty.edu. Shireen Nishant, I will greet the sun again organized by The Broad, Los Angeles, will be on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth February 19th through May 16th. The exhibition surveys approximately 30 years of the artist's video works and photography, investigating her passionate engagement with ancient and recent Iranian history, the experience of living in exile, and the human impact of political revolution. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Chris Oliver, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Tyler, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Before we get to paintings and other artworks of Natural Bridge, let's talk about Natural Bridge itself. How did it first come to be famous amongst Anglo-Americans in all the way back in the 18th century?
1: I think rarely can we point to a single individual for promoting such an American landscape, but Thomas Jefferson purchases the land in 1774 from the British crown, and it becomes a lifelong interest of his, and he's promoting it in his writings, in his publications, including notes on the state of Virginia, but his private correspondence as well, to get artists to come from Europe and paint it and consider it as a national icon, as equal to Niagara Falls, as a symbol of of the new nation. I really believe it is Jefferson's ardent encouragement of this site of national import that really garners the attention of authors and artists from, you know, 1780s through about the time of the American Civil War.
0: So this was not the only time Jefferson tried to make a landscape feature stick. So he he famously tried to make the Confluence of Rivers at Harper's Ferry in what was then Virginia into a national landscape he he referred to that area as being as offering a viewpoint unrivaled even in Europe so why do you think natural bridge sticks why why jefferson's campaign if you will around natural bridge works where it, as his advocacy for for the confluence of rivers at harpers ferry didn't
1: it's interesting to me that natural bridge doesn't take off in the same way I mean, there's even the Jefferson Rock at Harper's Ferry, right, that some artists, including Joshua Shaw, who's very much thinking of Jefferson when he visits Virginia in 1819, 1820. But the Natural Bridge does seem to be more interesting uh, and immediately associated with the artist. And I, I, I don't know if it's because of its geographically, topographically more distinct. I mean, a confluence of two rivers is, I mean, Harper's Ferry is a beautiful location, no doubt. But this this is unique in a way of course now you know we have other natural bridges across the country
0: they didn't then right
1: well they didn't know about them apparently
0: and they weren't part of the country yet
1: (laughs) oh right yes of course (laughs) but yeah it, it seems to be so unique that it can be kind of immediately read and understood and paired visually with Jefferson himself. And I'll point to the 1801 portrait of Thomas Jefferson by Caleb Boyle that's in the exhibition, this larger-than-life portrait of Jefferson that has him at the Natural Bridge. It's the only lifetime image of Jefferson, you know, depicted at this site. I'm not sure how visually immediate you could pair Jefferson with Harper's Ferry and get that kind of sense of, ah, yes, that Not only that is what that is, but it's monumental. There's a great sense of permanence with the natural bridge in that image that is, you know, something that the artist Boyle kind of at that moment in 1801 when Jefferson has just been inaugurated as president, you know, chose to be the emblem for Jefferson, a image of the natural environment, you know, contrary to kind of more standard representations of statesmen in built environments you know even if they're built environments of fantasy with giant columns and draperies spilling all over the place this is a kind of natural architectural i mean it, it does look somewhat architectural form uh that becomes associated with jefferson
0: no that's totally true i mean he's putting the the agrarian republican the great defender and promoter of agrarian republican ism out in nature but of course not necessarily within an agrarian spot you know but before we move on past caleb boyle this was this this painting might have been the surprise of the show for me forgive me but who the heck is caleb boyle
1: so we don't know much about him what we know is that in 1801 at shakespeare gallery in new york he shows this painting along with a pendant painting of john jay that is very much John Jay in the guise of the Lansdowne portrait of George Washington, you know, with his columns and draperies, and you know, had he not advertised this exhibition of the two works, I don't think we would know who Boyle is, and the paintings themselves have kind of escaped a lot of eyeballs.
0: Let me let me do let me do a little bit of this work for you. The the Caleb Boyle in your show is in the Kirby Collection of Historical Paintings at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania, which you're going to be very politic about, but I will feel freer to jump in and say, that's one reason no one knows the painting. It's in a fairly out of the way spot.
1: But even before then, the paintings, both paintings were on a ship during the War of 1812 and was captured by the British and taken back to London and auctioned off and sold into an estate where it remained there for maybe 100 years or so. So yeah. Not only that, that it has been at Lafayette College, who have been gracious, amazing lenders. You know, this is the, it was given to the college in 1943, and I think it has only left one other time. But yes, you know, where paintings live and whether they can be loaned for exhibitions, you know, does affect the amount of both the public and scholars, their ability to consider them.
0: If there is a beginning of natural bridge in Anglo American art, as a landscape, so not as a portraiture backdrop. If there's a beginning, what is it? Is it Joshua Shaw in the 1820s, something else?
1: Yeah, I think Shaw's two paintings of The Natural Bridge are remarkable, but they were intended to be engraved and put into his portfolios, uh, so that never happened. So those paintings probably aren't it. Let me say the earliest paintings that kind of match our expectations, largely, I think, of what Hudson River School, if we want to use that term, landscape painting might look like, would be the, the Jacob Caleb Wards, the two paintings of the natural bridge that appear around 1835. And Ward, for me, I find those two works so interesting because... Yes, Shaw paints the bridge twice, but Ward also seems to already be engaging with a practice that later artists, including Frederick Church and David Johnson, do, where they paint the bridge from directly underneath it along the back, uh, the base of the Cedar Creek, and then back up. Church writes he backs up a third of a mile to get that distant view of that. So Ward, and then picking up steam, you quickly see artists like Frederick Church and David Johnson coming to the site.
0: You know, before we get to David Johnson and Church, Edward Hicks, did he ever travel to Natural Bridge? No. So then how does, how do his paintings of Natural Bridge get made? They're pretty great, by the way.
1: Yeah, they are. And of course, you know, Hicks's, you know, a decade. These are 1822 to 25, his views of the Natural Bridge so he did not visit there, but of course they come a cartouche from a map of North America that was published in 1822. And in the cartouche by Henry Tanner, it shows the natural bridge kind of melded with Niagara Falls in this continued twinning of the two sites that, you know, goes back to Jefferson. So Hicks lifts his actual visual form of the bridge from that cartouche. And then in peaceful kingdom in the one that we have in the exhibition and in others he incongruously places william penn's treaty with the lenape indians below that so the natural bridge not being in pennsylvania wasn't so important but of course for hicks who is a you know a deeply religious quaker minister this is a kind of divine approbation of the land of you know the peaceful what hicks believed as a peaceful coexistence between the native and colonial populations.
0: In the 1850s, Frederick Church is in the middle of a 17-year span of making paintings that address the American nation, paintings that address various and specific points in the antebellum crisis and then, of course, the Civil War itself. And in the middle of this, in 1852... So, you know, three, three-ish 3 years into that project, he makes a painting of Natural Bridge. Why was he interested, maybe the most famous painting of Natural Bridge, why did he, why was he a committed and dedicated northerner interested in a southern landscape and in this southern landscape?
1: That's a great question. And I will freely admit, maybe not freely, but with a little bit of hesitation, because I don't want to put out any disrespect, but this painting is really why I did this exhibition. It was really the motivation to unpack this painting uh, for me. Well, the most literal explanation would be that his patron, Cyrus Field, of course, who later is his traveling companion and financed his South American trip in 1853, wanted to go on this little sojourn through Virginia, Kentucky, the Ohio River, and the Mississippi. Perhaps it was a test run maybe for what would become their later trips. So they go to Mount Vernon, Field and Church stay at a plantation in Charles City County named Shirley. And I have to wonder about that. We know Church, you know, is raised in the Congregationalist Church. He would later, of course, during the Civil War, have pretty ardently abolitionist themes in his paintings. And I think at this time, he certainly would have held some anti-slavery attitudes. He seemed to have fine enough time at Shirley that he left the family a little sketch of the of of the plantation itself. But then they travel from Shirley up the James, eventually getting to Natural Bridge where he does three sketches and we have the three original sketches on loan from Olana in the exhibition as well as the painting that he makes in New York City when he eventually returns. But it's interesting to me to point out that Church doesn't even complete this trip with Field, rather he bails shortly after being in Kentucky does not go to the Mississippi River. And in fact, he actually just goes up to Niagara Falls, which of course results in a fairly important painting later in his career. But to me, the painting of the Natural Bridges is wholly in line with the other productions of this point of his career, which as you point out, is about the American landscape, but I think also about different aspects of American history and culture and society. So he's at the Natural Bridge in June of 1851. You know, this is on the heels of several watershed moments in American history that emanate from the Mexican-American War, including most recently the Compromise of 1850, which allowed for, you know, continued unchecked expansion of slavery into American territories. And interestingly for me, Church's painting, I think, can be read as his processing of this. So in the lower portion of the painting, there's only two figures in the work. There's an African-American man standing pointing towards the arch of the bridge, speaking to a seated white woman. Now, I'm not the first person to point this out, but Church, who was, of course, layering history into his contemporary landscape, I think, was thinking about Thomas Jefferson and the legacies of slavery there. To make that just to back up a point, you know, Church has already painted West Rock New Haven And that painting was purchased by his patron Cyrus Field. And that's a painting that we already know as scholars is a folding of Connecticut history, the the hiding of English judges who sentenced Charles I to execution in that landscape with contemporary 1849 Connecticut and how it looked. So church and field already kind of have that as a working method when they get to the natural bridge. And other scholars have pointed out that church In placing that African American figure, might have been referencing a man named Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was, well, he was born in Westmoreland County, Virginia, enslaved. He purchased his own freedom, moves west, and works near Lexington, Virginia. In 1817, he's hired by Thomas Jefferson to be the caretaker of that land, to stop people from taking his timber, but also to really be the first guide. He gave Tours of the Natural Bridge to Jefferson himself and his family, or anyone else who would show up. So I think Church is referencing that history of Patrick Henry. But now, Tyler, you know as well as I, there's nothing amiss or randomly placed in a Frederick Church painting. And I think what's really interesting is when I started to look at this painting more, yes, he's gesturing towards the top of the arch, you know. Presumably, he could be saying, wow, well, this 215-foot-tall arch, it's massive, it's impressive. But if you follow the line of his hand even farther, you'll see that there's, in that direct line, is a split-rail fence that's sticking out of the brush.
0: You mean you mean at the top of the bridge?
1: At the top of the bridge.
0: Above the bridge, if you will, Yeah.
1: yeah. And to me, that indicates, via church, the active roadway that had been crossing the bridge then, you know for hundreds of years before Church's visit, as now. US 11 still runs over Natural Bridge. And this is part of what I think Church is also referencing, that active roadway being the Great Wagon Road, which was a a path for Western and Southern expansion and settlement, and of course also with slavery, which would also lead to the Wilderness Road, which also went west. The Natural Bridge has a long association of, of being an embarkation point, for Western departure, even going back to the 1740s in a story of another figure that Thomas would have known of, who, who lived at the Natural Bridge and was a Western explorer. But to kind of wrap this up real quickly, to me, with that figure pointing towards the active roadway, with the association between the bridge as a point of Western embarkation, on the heels of the Compromise of 1850, this speaks to me about a deep anxiety church may have had about the continued unchecked expansion of slavery, but also now the great effect in Virginia being just the incredible turning on of the violent spigot that was the internal slave trade, right? So Virginia's main industry now has become the sale of its own enslaved individuals further South, further West. And to me, I, I wonder, this is an anxiety that is shared by church and field, but then also this figure here. And I should point out also that also while Patrick Henry was a free person when he worked for Jefferson, all of the contemporary sources seem to say that they thought he was one of Jefferson's enslaved laborers brought from Monticello. So that's likely how church would have understood Patrick Henry. But I think... I read this as a great anxiety about this figure's future potentially being sold West or just the general expansion of the violent institution across the country.
0: Not to, I mean, I don't think I disagree with any of that, but it's interesting that in the midst of a 17 year period when Church is saying almost everything he has to say about the idea of the American nation through metaphor, that here he's being direct and almost literal just sticks out of the uber that way.
1: Yeah. And I think this painting as a Southern subject, as something that more addresses more directly addresses race does stick out.
0: Yes, that too. I mean, church doesn't address any non white people in his paintings in these years in a direct or f- present way. And, and yeah. and here is a, a black figure who's foregrounded in the literal foreground <laughs> gee, where does the word come from, of the painting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the same prominence is not given to any of the inhabitants of his of his South American paintings, you know?
0: Yeah, you know, there's one other thing about the road at the top of the bridge that you so smartly pointed out. At the time, in 1852, you know, railroads had started, but there was, as of yet, no way that had been found to get a railroad across the entire continent, it's only the year after Church makes this painting that the South jams through Congress the Gadsden Purchase, which extends the modern-day states of Arizona and New Mexico southward, thus creating a a grade, a terrain gentle enough so that a transcontinental could be built across the southern tier all the way to the Pacific, thus extending slavery potentially all the way to, to the Pacific. In these same years, California's ruling Democratic Party was trying to split California into two states, Northern California and Southern California, Northern free, Southern slave. And so Churches is, is painting just before that and w- when the road would have been the primary way, slavery was, as you noted, extended southward and westward.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I should also point out on the reverse of one of his sketches of the natural bridge, he does this tiny little quick sketch of a Conestoga wagon.
0: Yes, there's a detail in the catalog.
1: <laughs> yeah which then you know so he's seeing this he's seeing the the travel and then uh, that also then appears in new england landscape his, his painting from then the same
0: year of 1852 yeah which because we're talking about natural bridge i'm gonna <laughs> leave alone yes uh, let's because <laughs> <laughs> after all there are 83 new england landscapes some of them like the one at the Ammon carter that was not church's title of course so for my money the great the greatest painting of natural bridge comes in 1860, one of the most fraught years in American history. And it's a painting by David Johnson. David Johnson painted several natural bridges, but you've got the best one in the show, the one from Reynolds House in Winston's, at, at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem. What makes David Johnson's natural bridge so great and is part of why it's great totally outside the rectangle?
1: I think the David Johnson painting, this is the one that Johnson has done from about a third of a mile away from the bridge up on a kind of overlook, is remarkable because it's refigured the bridge in many ways. It's not the standard, what I call the kind of keyhole view. That's the one Church gives you and Ward before that and many other artists, which he does paint. He does three other versions of the natural bridge from you know its base along the creek. But what is remarkable about this is that in some ways, the bridge is more petite in a way. It's kind of ensconced in the velvety greenness of the Shenandoah Valley. But also what's remarkable about this painting to me is that the bridge is no longer in this kind of ahistorical, eternal, timeless spot. Rather, this is the natural bridge in 1860. And he's given you some of that surrounding building up of the landscape. You have pathways that go right from the very right side of the painting all the way through, you know, through that roadway that we were speaking about that crosses the bridge. And you have, I guess, commercial buildup. You have a tavern, you know, that it is, is catering to perhaps Johnson himself, but certainly, you know, the local tourist industry. You know, we are, so many of these landscapes by Johnson and his contemporaries pull their subjects out of time through the removal of anything specific. And yet Johnson here, you know, in 1860, he's visiting this subject in 1860 and 61, kind of really places it at this important moment in American history.
0: I mean, I think he's also painting it as a bridge between North and South, and it's verdant, and the Union holds.
1: That's right, yeah. And it's important to remember, as you point out, that in 1860, Virginia joining a southern breakaway nation, the Confederacy was by no means a given.
0: If if not outright unlikely at that point.
1: Right. Yeah, that's right. It's not far from West Virginia even, but it, it's, you know... And through its historic associations, you remember, it can be seen as that kind of uniting of the landscape because it does seem to unite the two sides of the terrain. You know, well, there's the Henry Clay, quote... The bridge that carries a highway and makes two mountains one. Well, that bridge seems to be doing that right here and through the historical association. So we know the Jefferson Association, that was well known. But by this time, also the George Washington myth had really taken hold, that he had surveyed the land and carved his initials on the bridge, which you can still see the GW today, but that is a myth. Washington, though he knew of the bridge and recommended that other people visit it, I don't think he was ever there himself. And so we see... Throughout the 1850s, Jefferson and Washington as the male ability of their figures to any political end is possible. It could be the benign slaveholders. They could be the emancipators and then and, and the unionists as well. So it is, again, a, a historically associated landscape.
0: That would have been especially important in 1860 because in some ways the last great cross-sectional American project was the preservation of Mount Vernon which had happened, you know, just, just a year or two before this particular Johnson painting. Your your show continues, to a certain extent, the, the last great painted natural bridges are about this period. The Civil War is, you know, causes a disjuncture. There's a Jervis McEntee in the show from later, from 1876 or 7, I forget it's which. 7. Uh, seven yeah, probably should have been 1876 because of the centennial i mean he was he was he was a day late <laughs> <Gervous>.
1: <laughs> but you know he's also i think not overwhelmed by it and it's a small painting it's a plein air sketch really i almost feel like he had some allegiance to church his his mentor to go there
0: it's so a more biographical reason to go than a nationally unifying reason to go
1: it's a beautiful work. I think it's really well done, but it is, it's not a worked up, you know, McEntee in a way that we see other places.
0: It's also in a painting that hints at sectional tension because in the McEntee, the top half of the bridge is in sunlight and the bottom half is not. It's in your collection. I should be saying nicer things about it. (laughs) I, I I was saying that as well. (laughs) So your, your show continues on and includes photography of natural bridge. I can scarcely think of an Eastern subject that lends itself to stereography more than Natural Bridge, and and there are indeed stereographs in the show. What did photographers make of it? And were stereographs as popular as one would expect a a keyhole three-dimensional feature to be? Yeah, the
1: stereo views are everywhere. I mean, in a period where Natural Bridge, no doubt, has declined in its reputation as an important site for artists to visit, the stereo views just plow on, and it becomes really an important way to continue to have the natural bridge and a national conversation about important landscape sites. I don't think it's with the same passion or fervor, but it's out there. And the earliest photograph in this show is from 1858, and it's a stereo view. I do hope that this exhibition brings out some earlier photographs because I cannot believe that there is not cased photographs of the natural bridge from the late 1740s
0: or 1750s. 1840s or 1850s, but go on.
1: Yes, excuse me. <laughs> 1840, that would be remarkable. Uh, 1840s, <laughs> late 1840s, 1850s. So the stereo views continue to be produced throughout the rest of the century, disseminated widely internationally, and they do bring to life the natural bridge. And they do give different angles, and they do document different aspects of lives at the natural bridge that have sprung up. There's a great scene of uh, one of the stereo views on the ex- in the exhibition from Washington and Lee shows this baptism, mass baptism with lots of people, an integrated, racially integrated church under the bridge holding a baptism. In Virginia, in the height of Jim Crow, it's pretty remarkable. And there's a particular photographer who produces some of these stereo views and some of the other photographs that are used as kind of and circulated within kind of, let's say, souvenir or tourist circles. And that man is Michael Miley. He's a Lexington, Virginia photographer. And I knew from the outset of this project that Miley's photographs would be in the exhibition because I doubt anyone photographed the bridge more than him. He probably spent 40 years photographing the natural bridge and producing photographs in varying ranges of quality in terms of printing and intended use. Some of them are quite remarkable and beautiful. Some of them really probably were just sold, you know, out of a rack in his storefront in Lexington. But what's great, what was great to find in the research of this exhibition is a series of his glass plate negatives in the collection of Washington and Lee and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture that were printed unlikely printed in his lifetime, but printed in the 1970s and 80s that show the natural bridge from completely unorthodox views, right? So you can see the natural bridge like close-ups of the rock face. You can see the natural bridge shot from the top at a completely oblique angle from underneath the arch with you have the two ovoid areas of sky and a kind of intersecting barren tree that make it look really almost like an abstract work of art. And this is an artist working in Lexington, Virginia, in around 1890 to 1900, these are probably shot. And I just found it so remarkable that this artist, who I would have to assume is so tired of shooting the natural bridge after decades of this, has continued to find it as an artistic source of inspiration and is advancing you know, the potential of photography to create Art, if you want to say, but to, to create a new visual language and to just be experimental with it at this site. And so we have four of those photographs, not printed by Miley, but just taken from his negatives in the exhibition because it, it shows, I think, the artistic mind at work, even if, you know, he knew that these wouldn't be placed in, in a little rack in his store and sold to those coming through Lexington.
0: Yeah, one of them is, is strikingly modernist. We'll, we'll have images of the Miley's on, on manpodcast.com. Chris Oliver, thanks so much.
1: Tyler, thank you so much. This has been great.
0: Bema Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, is accepting applications from national and international curators for its 2022-23 Curator-in-Residence Program. Beginning January 2022, The successful candidate will participate in an 18-month, fully subsidized live-work residency as part of Bemis Center's acclaimed Artist-in-Residence program. They will originate and present one exhibition and related public programs inclusive of local, national, and international artists. Competitive applicants will possess a strong knowledge of national and international contemporary art and a genuine interest in researching and responding to cultural production in Omaha and the region. The curator-in-residence will serve as a professional resource for local artists and arts professionals, and as an ambassador of Bemis Center in the community. She, he, they will be an integral member of Bemis Center's Artist in Residence program, stimulating intellectual discourse surrounding contemporary art practice through studio visits, knowledge-sharing workshops, and other organized programs with fellow artists and residents. Applicants who have experience working in alternative art spaces, challenging conventional exhibition formats, and are invested in social justice and community-centered programming are strongly encouraged to apply. The deadline to apply is Friday, May 14th, at 11.59 p.m. Central. Find additional details and apply at bemiscenterorg slash apply. Welcome back. Next up, Americans in Spain, painting and travel 1820 to 1920 at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. My guest is Corey Piper, who curated the show along with Brandon Rood. Americans in Spain looks at a period when both American artists and Europeans rushed into Spain to chronicle its scenic landscapes and cities, and to learn from painters such as Velázquez. It also considers how Spain and Spanish art informed America's art. The exhibition's at the Chrysler through May 16th It will travel to the Milwaukee Art Museum. The fine exhibition catalog was published by the museum. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for about 60 bucks. Corey Piper, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you
2: so much for having me
0: from about you know 1830 or so on we think of the primary european destination for american artists as being italy florence rome naples yeah you know we know all the spots so when did american artists and for that matter i guess collectors too start going to spain and why 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 spain
2: yeah so uh, american artists really started traveling in numbers and in earnest to spain following the Civil War. There were very few American artists who had traveled to the country before the 1860s. And around the 1860s is when the first artists began showing up there, artists like Samuel Coleman, the landscape painter, was one of the earliest painters to travel in and around Spain, followed by others like George Henry Hall. And They were attracted through a number of different factors during that time period. The first and foremost source of attraction for American painters was really the Prado in Madrid to study examples of Spanish old master painting. They were really only available to be seen in person in great numbers and great quality at the Prado. Their collections of Spanish old master painting were really unparalleled. And so artists are beginning more and more to become interested in the art that's on view within Spain, but also there's a growing tourism industry in Spain that's attracting a greater number of American travelers, which include artists as well. So travel to Spain becomes somewhat easier. In the 1860s, Madrid is connected to the Spanish border by rail for the first time. So you could take a train from other European capitals and arrive in Madrid. So there's this growing tourism industry as well, which is fueled by a travel literature, which had been developing and growing in English language travel books for for quite some decades, but is reaching kind of a a fever pitch by this period, which is luring and enticing many American travelers and particularly American artists who from the 1870s onwards are showing up in great numbers. And many of America's leading painters are placing Spain as an important destination on their grand tour, their European studies.
0: From about the, you know, early to mid-Jacksonian era forward... One of the reasons, a prime reason even, that American artists go to Spain is it allows them a way to make art about and celebrating and heralding American republicanism without really having to address any of the messiness, racism at the core of American republicanism. Are there similar contemporary political reasons and and histories they could access in Spain?
2: you know, when you're traveling, as, a, as any kind of tourist or traveler, and particularly an artist, the sort of literature or art that they create about the places that they're traveling tells more about the traveler than about the places that they're visiting. And so certainly that's the case with Americans who are traveling to the country in the latter half of the 19th century. And, you know, in the catalog, Eugenia Ben Guenova writes about this phenomenon that travelers to Spain are kind of looking for a usable past. In Spain there's kind of a way of looking at the country from a number of different angles, but they see a sort of backwardness in some respects to an anti-modern aspect of Spain. So looking towards Spain's medieval histories, medieval monuments, certainly as its Islamic histories, its Islamic monuments, and finding in these sort of an antidote or a or sort of fixed point of reference in which the, the United States could define itself as you know, a, a modern power, a modern Republican power, a modern industrializing nation in opposition to the sort of fixed frozen and amber world culture that they encountered in Spain.
0: You mentioned that American artists start going to Spain after the Civil War, and we'll get into some specifics in just a second, but about those kind of potential contemporary political, cultural, religious, et cetera, links, this is the period when Catholicism really begins to grow in the United States, starting with, well, I guess that starts during the war as Irish immigration increases. Was the increase in American Catholicism at all important to American artists or their interest in Spain, or even maybe the way that many religions were practiced and left architectural and other remains in Spain?
2: Yeah, I think there's certainly something to be said about the American artistic response to Spain that could be connected to a kind of anxiety about an influx of Catholic immigrants, certainly to the United States in the latter half of the 19th century. And this could be charted in a number of different ways. One key way is in the favor in which certain Spanish old masters were viewed by an American public. So earlier in the century, in the 1860s and 1870s, really the premier Spanish old master painter among American audiences was Bartolomé Murillo, who was was well known for his religious scenes, his scenes of uh, the Virgin Mary of the Immaculate Conception. He, he created quite a number of those. And he was an artist that there was a great degree of awareness among American audiences earlier in the 19th century and was an artist who was quite popular. So some of the earliest American painters who traveled to Spain, like George Henry Hall, but even Mary Cassatt, were said to emulate Murillo in their work. When Mary Cassatt's first paintings that she created in Spain were shown in the United States in Philadelphia, actually, the critics said that they were painted with the best traditions of Murillo. But eventually Mario fell out of favor with American audiences. Part of that is due to the rising popularity and adulation, adoration for Velázquez. But part of that is could be tied to kind of a growing unease within American audiences and in the American cultural sphere over the overt Catholicism of his works. And certainly, I think he could tie that to a political moment in which, there's growing Catholic populations within the United States and certainly some unease among you know, politically or socially dominant Protestant cultures within the United States.
0: The exhibition starts with a bunch of Anglo-American-Hispanic connections, and some that I think will be surprising to audiences. Where do those connections start, and how was James McNeil Whistler a particular point of connection?
2: So I I think that's something that we hope that is presented new in this exhibition. I think people often think of the engagement with Spain as something that happens through France, through the work of Edward Manet in particular, but that American artists were exposed to Spanish art and Spanish culture through their connections in France. But we include in the exhibition a, a number of works of art that really expose the important points of connection early in the 19th century between British artists who were some of the first foreign artists to travel to Spain, artists like David Roberts, David Wilkie, John Frederick Lewis. These were British painters who were traveling to Spain in the 1830s and were some of the first to capture Spain's landscape, its monuments, its people, but who were also the first to kind of create this vision of Spain as a place of romantic exploits and legendary tales. And they created a vision of Spain that was very attractive to many of the artists who came after them. And so we look at these, these images spread through a number of means. Certainly these artists like Roberts, as well as John Philip, a painter who traveled slightly later to Spain. But these artists who were patronized at the highest levels of British society by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who gobbled up their paintings, who who couldn't get enough of their Spanish subjects. But also there were images spread through engravings, particularly in books. So David Roberts is an interesting example. He, He visits Spain in the 1830s and he partners with Robert Jennings, a, a publisher of travel guides to Spain that are it's a series of travel guides titled The Tourist in Spain. And so he's creating images. It's one of the first of its kind of an illustrated travel guide that tells the story of traveling throughout Spain, but also provides the reader images of what they might see. So they can be armchair travelers back in their own home countries, or they can be enticed to to make the journey themselves to see the images. And it's really a partnership between artist and author because the artists like David Roberts have the most direct firsthand knowledge of what they're seeing. And so the text of the book is really shaped around these images. And in the, in the catalog, in Eugenia's essay, she goes into great detail. There's there's many, many books that are published in English in Britain during the first half of the 19th century that expand upon this idea of creating a sort of romantic vision or picturesque vision of Spain that proliferates to both British audiences, but across the Atlantic to American audiences as well. And this forms a vision of Spain in the minds of many American audiences, but particularly the artists who are, you know, coming of age before the Civil War and who might be relying upon these images before they make their journey. And so there's beyond the kind of publishing or proliferation of of the early images of Spain, there's other kind of interesting and important points of contact between the United States, Great Britain and Spain. And in some cases, it's artists who were exposed to Spanish art in the United Kingdom rather than traveling to Spain. So like Thomas Sully is an interesting example. He never travels to Spain himself, but while he is in London working as a portraitist, he, he witnesses kind of the vogue for Bartolomé von Murillo among British audiences. And he starts to create work inspired by Murillo's work four audiences back in the United States. And so include one example that was commissioned by, by an American patron, but created in, in the United Kingdom based upon his experiences with Murillo of a, a young Romani woman, a kind of romantic vision of a very popular subject among uh, old master painters like Murillo.
0: That's an 1839 painting. I think it's the earliest American painting in the show.
2: Yeah, one of the earliest painters to engage seriously with Spanish art, but never makes the trip to Spain himself. But you, you begin to see this kind of way that Spanish art and imagery is filtering back through the United Kingdom. And so, you know, this continues for throughout the decades, throughout the 19th century, that there's sort of interesting stopover points among American artists who first are exposed to Spanish art or the idea of Spanish culture and imagery in the United Kingdom. So you mentioned Whistler is a is a really interesting example. He is in the later nineteenth century he's the artist that's perhaps most commonly compared to Velazquez among critics and writers about art in in English in both British and American publications. They talk about, you know, the walking through the Prado, William Merritt Chase talks about, you know, seeing on every wall, he sees Whistler in the Velazquez paintings that he's seeing there. And so Chase actually seeks out, he he hadn't met Whistler yet, but on a trip to Europe in 1885, he, he seeks out Whistler in London, And they go on this kind of journey throughout Europe, and part of the idea was that they could go to Spain together and see the works of the the Spanish old masters there, but they kind of famously have this great falling out over their, I don't know, mutual inability to get along is a nice way to put it, but they have this sort of project to create portraits of each other. And Chases is Portrait of Whistler's at the Met, perhaps the most famous portrait of uh, of Whistler that, that's known today. He kind of tries to embody Whistler in the style of painting in the portrait, but Whistler famously hated the the portrait and couldn't stand it, and never quite completed his. And so Whistler, although he's compared to and he collected photographs of paintings by Velázquez, and he would have seen them in collections and exhibitions in the United Kingdom, he himself never traveled to Spain beyond crossing over the border for about a day. He he wrote to an acquaintance that the culture clash of crossing the border and not understanding the language was just too much for him to deal with. And so he never traveled extensively to Spain, he never went to the Prado and saw those works in person, but he, he kind of engaged with them throughout his life and had a kind of standoff relationship with them, with with the artists, with the Spanish old master painters. and. So, you know, we create, we include in in the exhibition one of his later self-portraits called Brown and Gold, and it's it's an extremely Velazquezian mode. I think we would try to make the case for he's sort of recreating a pose from Velazquez's portrait of the actor Pablo de Valladolid, and you know, he he sort of embodies a lot of the stylistic qualities of of Velazquez's work, you know, the sort of really strong silhouette of the figure. The frame of the composition that hues very closely to the the figure placed within them, sort of rumination on a, a on a very limited range of hues within the painting. So there's all kinds of stylistic odes to Velázquez there but another kind of anecdote that that Whistler famously when an, another acquaintance said that the greatest painters ever must be Velázquez and Whistler Whistler's famous retort was why drag in Velázquez that you know he he denied a, sort of sources of influence and certainly didn't want to be seen as someone who was at all imitative or deriving aspects of his art from another another painter
0: i can't imagine anyone not liking Whistler the person <laughs> He was kind of like the forerunner of Clifford Still as a persnickety pain in the butt.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of the, the the history of art is littered with people you would never want to have a
0: drink with, unless you were a Confederate in London in the 1860s, and then yeah, you would find um fine common ground. The two American painters uh, who are best represented in the exhibition are William Merritt Chase and and John Singer Sargent. I think we typically think of Sargent as being obsessed with Italy and Chase, you know, maybe in a different way as being obsessed with Long Island. What does each of them get out of or get from Spain?
2: So both Chase and Sargent visited Spain repeatedly and really engaged deeply with both Spanish painting, and to some varying degree in both cases to Spanish people and Spanish culture. So both artists spent significant time copying paintings at the Prado, particularly by Velazquez. So Sargent spends a number of weeks in, in 1879, which is kind of, he had been to Spain before, but this was kind of his first adult trip as a professional artist. And he spends a great deal of time copying works after Velazquez. And Chase makes his trip in 1881, his first trip, and spends time copying as well works by Velazquez, which was a very common method of study among academic painters in the 19th century, that you sit in front of a work by an old master and you create, recreate the experience of them composing and completing the work to learn both technical aspects of their art, you know, from the the very basic of building up color, but also the way in which they approach kind of their subjects. It was a way of Gaining a deeper understanding of an artist, and we include a number of these copies in in the exhibition. I think most interestingly, in the case of Chase and Sargent, we have an example of of their copies of the same painting by Velázquez. Velázquez's Aesop, his painting of the famous author of the the fables, and I think that shows it shows a really interesting point of departure in their approach, I think, to understanding the work of Velazquez. Because Chase's copy is much more direct. It's really trying to recreate or uh, replicate, I think, the the work of Velazquez. So it's it's almost identical in scale. It's the full figure of the painting and really trying to sort of mimic the style of brushwork, which is quite loose but still well defined in the figure and solidly modeled of the figure. Whereas Sargent's copy of Aesop, it focuses just on the head of the figure. So it's just his face really. And you really see Sargent allowing himself to be much more free and perhaps more individualistic in his copying of the old master. So it's really built up loose brushwork that kind of exaggerates the famous, you know, loose brushwork or vivid surface effects of Velázquez for which he was so so famous. Sargent takes it to an even further degree. So I think if you try to maybe parse out the two artists' different approach, you know, other people might have varying opinions. But I think Sargent's was perhaps more to be inspired by the methods of the Old Master, whereas Chase was trying to evoke or embody the techniques and the style of the Old Master. So it's kind of twin approaches to Velasquez. Certainly he was very important to to both artists' more independent compositions that came later, certainly taking ideas about you know composing figures in space but also the relationship between light and dark hues within a larger composition
0: We'll have images of all three of those paintings, the Velasquez painting and the Sargent and the Chase looking at Aesop on manpodcast.com for two artists, Sargent and Chase who were so regularly routinely in service to wealth in ways that maybe Make it difficult for some of us to find our way into their work it's an It's a really fun way to look at Sargent and chase and and to get away from their gilded age gilded ageness and just to think about them as as painters full stop
2: yeah, sorry if I can jump in there because that's a it's an interesting point that you make. There's a painting in the exhibition which maybe expands upon that idea a little bit. It's a portrait by Chase. It's called Girl in White from the Akron Art Museum. And I think from first glance, it might bear all of those hallmarks that you might mention that of a celebration of sort of opulent wealth and just sort of the trappings of robber baron gilded age society. But as you if you look at it in terms of chase's engagement with Velazquez he painted it just a year or two after an extensive trip to Madrid where he was studying in particular Las Meninas and the the work of the uh, Velazquez's treatment of the fabric certainly in the infanta's dress and that really famous masterpiece by by the old master and in the canvas it, it borrows all these kind of compositional ideas from Velazquez, but most of all I think the idea of the contrast or the relationship between this creation of you know spatial realism. It's certainly a true likeness of the sitter and she exists as a a very realist or naturalistic depiction of the young girl, the teenage Edith Dimmick. But there's just this exuberance of surface effects in her dress that are just an artist really having a good time and playing up his skill to the utmost degree, certainly a kind of an ode to what he's learned from studying Velasquez, but really showing off his ability to take ownership of it and create these brilliant surface effects with the paint surface and the brushwork that exist in perfect harmony with the more naturalistic depiction of the sitter. And in the end, actually, you know, and he gives it this title, Girl in White, which is kind of evocative of, you know, sort of Whistler's kind of aesthetic movement titles. And in the end, the the family was pretty dissatisfied with the portrait. They did not they didn't reject it, but it was one that was not a family favorite, because I think Chase went quite too far in indulging his own aesthetic interests rather than adhering to what the sitter and her family might have been interested in.
0: To do the Spain-Italy thing again, you know, in, in in Italy American painters for generations went and made paintings of Etna and went and made paintings of the Roman Campania and Paestum and Lake Nemi and for three of those four, you know the reason or a major reason was that address of American republicanism are there Spanish la- landscapes or Spanish sites to which American painters returned over and over? across a generation or two.
2: Yes, certainly. And I would say probably first and foremost of those was in Granada, and in particular, the Alhambra was a major destination for American painters who traveled to Spain. Certainly, it's still a major destination for all tourists who traveled to Spain. It's famous as one of the best preserved examples of Islamic architecture in Spain, but in all of the world, really, of Islamic medieval architecture. And so many painters flocked there. Certainly its fame was cemented by the author Washington Irving, an American writer who was in residence there and and wrote his famous tales of the Alhambra, which went through many numerous editions and reprints and was widely known throughout the English-speaking world and translated into many languages. But artists went to the Alhambra in great numbers. And we include in, in the exhibition, there's a number of different ways in which artists engaged with the Alhambra. One of the earliest is a a landscape by David Roberts, the British painter who traveled to Granada, and he created this really expansive panoramic landscape that includes the Alhambra and the Sierra Nevada mountains beyond. And it's a pastiche it's not something that he would have witnessed in person it's not a topographical representation of the landscape it's something that he put together back in the studio and i think this was a common approach for a lot of different artists who went to granada and to the alhambra in particular because there's so many different aspects that interested artists and that they engaged with in different ways and different levels. So, there's one interesting landscape by John Ferguson Weir from around the turn of the 20th century. And he had traveled to Granada and the Alhambra on the advice of his half brother, J. Alden Weir, another American painter. And unlike his half brother, John Ferguson Weir found the Alhambra to be totally over the top and you know, treacly and too full of ornament that he didn't find the actual architecture in the building itself to be of all that much interest to him. But the wider landscape and the way in which the massive fortress and palace complex sit on on the hill overlooking Granada and its neighborhoods, and particularly the oldest neighborhood, the Albacene, which is on the other side of the river from the Alhambra, that whole complete picture to him was really encapsulated the larger ideas of Spanish landscape, of its grandeur, but also its ancientness and its old medieval monuments.
0: Well, I have images of both of those on the website. Special note about the David Roberts painting, which is at the Harvard Art Museums. It was a gift of Richard Feigen, who uh, died just before we are taping this. You wrote a catalog essay about how Americans were interested in copying paintings by Spanish masters, and that's come up a couple times here as we've talked particularly paintings by Velázquez and Murillo maybe in in closing you could address how American painters found interesting two other Spanish painters Ribera and Zurbarán
2: You know the the major figure in the late 19th century for American audiences and artists was certainly Diego Velázquez but that's not to say that other Spanish old master painters that Americans encountered in the Prado or through other travels were of interest. And Ribera is an interesting case. I would say after Murillo and Velázquez, he was maybe the third most popular or interesting artist. And we include in the exhibition, we have an example of his work uh, showing a young saint, St. John the Baptist, which gets at kind of his maybe unique approach to realism. And particularly in the depiction of flesh, which I think particularly Robert Frederick Bloom was quite interested in. And we include a copy of his after a painting at the Prado, The Trinity, an altarpiece from 1635, which is at the Prado. His copy of it, it only takes a very particular part of the painting, which is perhaps the most gruesome. It's the the lifeless Christ's body as he's being ascended into heaven. and. You know, his copy of it, it's really a study of the way in which the artist, in this very straightforward and kind of simple way, and just a few economical use of brushstrokes, is able to give this idea of a, a very tactile and real flesh. And so Blum in his copy, he focuses just on Christ's body. And it kind of divorces it from this larger religious subject or this religious theme that the grand landscape, you know, it's it it's iconographically very easy to read when you look at the larger painting. But when you just focus on on the figure's body, it, it sort of just looks like a a corpse or a, a you know, a body that's just beginning to decompose. And I think this idea in you know, picking and choosing what artists take from particular old masters is very interesting and I think that's something that's very interesting to explore through the way in which they copied. This this effect of, of intense realism in the flesh of the figure You know, it's obviously something that caught Blum's attention and his interest, but it's a way of learning. It's a way of learning and taking a lesson from these artists. And, you know, it's interesting because we have other, a couple other examples of Blum's work in the exhibition, which are quite different. He was an artist who was very interested in the work of Mariana Fortuny, a more contemporary, a 19th century Spanish painter. And you know, in those works it's very hard to decipher any of these kind of lessons that he might have taken in in this sort of intense realism. Certainly they're works with a high degree of, of naturalism and a kind of a, a painterly approach to realism. But you know, these these sort of examples that artists are taking from these copies are, are just bits and pieces that they're compiling of a kind of catalog or personal record of of their of the things that they saw as they traveled and as they experienced these works of art in person. And so Zerberon, you know, the category of, of Spanish still life was one that was perhaps lower in interest among American artists and collectors, but certainly I think one that was not completely ignored. And we make a comparison in the exhibition between the work of Zerberon and sort of realist still life painters and William Merritt Chase's strong interest in still life. He was an artist who painted still life throughout his career. He often used them as kind of demonstration pieces within his classes, but he used them as opportunities to depict kind of the varied and exotic bric-a-brac that he collected throughout his lifetime. These are objects that, you know, for him kind of evoked ideas of antiquity or ancientness, and These are also kind of objects that were connected in the minds of many collectors and kind of people with antiquarian interests in the United States that were connected with Spain in those histories.
0: Corey Piper, thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.